as Lisa comes forward to read from the book of Acts. The book of Acts often is something that's with us in the Easter season, in the season following Easter. Um, I have personally, in my journey as a pastor, not paid a lot of attention to it uh, because I was a little uncertain of its history. It seems to be Luke, a historian, though we, you know, it doesn't seem to exactly align with our understanding of history today, so I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And then I realized, in ignoring that, I'm ignoring the witness of one of my key ancestors in faith that desired us to see that God is at loose in the world, bearing witness to the fact that God invites all people into one family. And if we discount an author at the beginning, we fail to hear that message. And that's something I'm going to reflect on today. So a reading from the book of Acts. Let us pray. God of grace, may the meditation of our hearts and the words from our mouths be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our strength and redeemer. Amen. So today's reading is from Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even onto the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. The word of the Lord. Please join me in singing our refrain. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. How you love me. Let's try that a couple more times. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. How you love me. One more time. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed. One of the things I reflected on in my uh, vacation and then a, then a time at a conference this month has been, what is it that keeps me going in ministry? And it, it occurred to me that I sort of need to return to some sense to what fuels me, uh, which in both in my call to ministry and in the life of the church has been the study of Scripture and more also understanding how we read. This is, has been my fascination uh, in if I am to be a healthy pastor, I need to re- return in some sense to what fuels me. And these last couple of weeks have been stumbling an attempt to communicate some of the things, that, some of my convictions now about reading 
scripture in our time, and I'm going to continue to work at that to keep me going as we engage in all the administrative activities we are. The past several weeks ago, I gave you an illustration that we don't really we don't read scripture completely objectively. In fact, uh, we never have. Uh, as Christians, we have been taught to read scripture through what I've called the lens of faith, which is Jesus Christ. Christians believe that Jesus reveals the heart of God. And that story of Jesus has a particular contour passed on to us, and that's the lens of faith. And the lens of love tells us if we're reading uh, the story of Jesus and hating our neighbor, we're not really reading Scripture well. And so those are the two lenses on the glasses that we have. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about the frames. Uh, which is what today's text subjects are about. But this gospel lesson is no more clear in Scripture, this idea that we lens, we look to God through Jesus, the lens of faith, uh, and that results in loving people. It's a wonderful text, very important to our founder, John Wesley. John 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be complete in you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. The word of the Lord. In my reflections, uh, in my personal meditation this week on the, my difficulties with the book of Acts, I was reminded, I had a flashback uh, to a seminary classroom. It was intro to Old Testament, my first semester in seminary. And things had been pretty tense in the class since the midterm. Uh, it hadn't gone well for any of us, and most of us were taking it out on the teacher. And we were discussing uh, the archaeological evidence of Israel's conquest of the promised land, of which, by the way, there is very little archaeological evidence about how that happened. And in fact, at least at the time of that class, uh, a number of archaeologists suggested that the city of Jericho, which had, is the, the among the longest, oldest walled cities on the planet, had not actually been occupied at the time of Joshua's conquest. And at that moment, one of my colleagues, one of my seminary classmates, had had too much of this, uh, stood up in the class and said, Teacher, you can take my Jericho, but you can't have my Jesus. It was evidence of a problem. Uh, 
a problem of tension throughout my seminary education was the feeling in this, Pastor Melinda can probably relate, a seminary degree is actually an academic degree. But there's, some, there's, there's a, a spirit, there's a, actually a method uh, of an academia that we are taught to live and breathe, which sometimes does not jive with the way we are church. A part of that principle is in reading is one is you set aside your judgments in order to determine the facts. And from that information, then you as a free-thinking person can make conclusions. And that's really the way all of us in some sense are educated, particularly in a, a secular environment. In seminary uh, biblical studies, it goes from what it meant or what happened, to what it means. And you're not allowed to make that connection until uh, you've come to a thorough conclusion about what uh, it clearly meant, or what absolutely happened. And if you can't figure that out, then you sort of discount what's in the text. And this was my problem with Acts, just as my colleague's problem with Jericho. It just seemed to leave, be leaving something out, something important to the faith, uh, Something lacking in spirituality of doing that. I have totally left my text, and so I'm trying to figure out where I was. <laughs> so we have been taught, as I'm, as I, I have experienced over the years, that this is what we are to do. In fact, we have bookshelves. My my first attempt at a, at a pastor's library was filled with books trying to explain the facts, what what happened, what an ancient text meant. And it really, before long, I figured out those were useless. Not entirely useless, but not helpful. And I watched people in the pews and in Bible study classes doing the same thing. We spent so much energy trying to figure out what actually happened and then saying, well, I'm not sure that I agree with that or I or how a text came to be, that we never really get to the matter itself. Somehow we've never even read the text. And by the time I was in seminary, generations of clergy prior, including myself, had this difficulty of bridging this distance. The idea that what one does first is become completely objective, and then make conclusions. The problem is simply, human beings do not communicate that way. It isn't the way we write. It isn't the way we read. An example. I know you have been in situations where you've been listening to a conversation or a lecture or any other context where you heard the words coming from the person's mouth, but you had no clue what they were talking about. I see that look on many of your faces right now. The key is the subject, is that we have to understand and appreciate what the person is saying, what the person is talking about, to be able to understand what's being said. The reason why this doesn't work in scriptural study is often that we have excluded from the very beginning faith in search of facts. Faith is something that comes later. 
the difficulty is, in doing it that way, we never really hear the text, what the person is trying to say to us. The core of reading Scripture is hearing the text itself. Another example, I have been recently in a car full of people, and there was a talker in the back seat. And I swear this person had not stopped talking for 30 minutes. And I had probably disconnected from the conversation for about 15 minutes. Heard all the words. Not interested in the topic, so I really wasn't hearing. That's a remarkable thing, is that when one has lost interest or not truly being with the person speaking, that you really don't hear anything. And then all of a sudden I heard an expression, kitty-cornered. And this perked up my ears. Because I thought this person was a native Californian. In my experience, native Californians don't use words like kitty-cornered. I'm a Midwesterner. We communicate via euphemisms and smoke signals. So I immediately recognized that this person now had my interest because I felt some connection and over a word. But I still had no clue what the person was actually talking about because I was, wasn't listening. I wasn't interested in the subject. We approach biblical studies sometimes like this. We are curious about the words or an event. But what we've missed is actually the person, what the person is trying to communicate to us. And this is where, in the middle of the last century, biblical studies found ourselves. A group of folks listening to the words, then a group of folks attempting then, only then, to talk about faith. The trouble is most people aren't able to make that connection. And I've watched Bible studies get lost over the years in those, those facts because we weren't really listening. We actually had ruled out before we began the, uh, the thought that this person could be trying to tell us something about God. It's a remarkable thing. In the middle of the last century, one of the great theologians of this church said, noting this problem, that the universal rule of interpretation is that one interprets something in light of its subject, which seems pretty straightforward. But that's not what we've attempted to do in academic Christian life. We don't listen to what the author is attempting to tell us unless we've verified all the words, the facts, to our satisfaction. So, through the glasses of faith and love, I would add the frames, which is listening to the author's intent subject, the subject of the Bible. We can't rule it out before we read. It's what folks do in schools and classes and so much writing about the Bible. The subject of the Bible, what is the subject of the Bible? Exactly. The Bible is our, is our ancestors' communication to us. Their witness. A witness is a different thing than historical reportage. Their witness to us of their encounter 
with a living God at loose in the world. And if we set aside that before we read, we're not going to hear. God is at loose in the world, and that is the conviction which we begin reading, not the conclusion we come to. So to the lens of faith and love, I'd add the frames. I call the rule of hope. We approach folks listening in order to hear them. And the ancients are trying to communicate to us their conviction and their encounter with a God that loose in the world. You won't hear if you discount that from the beginning. I have a closing illustration which might or might not have connection to anything I just said. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's a frame. So when I was, uh, this hot weather made me think of um, something I did in uh, when I was a teenager, which was going on a float trip. And you know what a float trip is? A lot of Californians don't want to know what a float trip is for some reason. Yeah, it's pretty basic. So if you were to do a biblical study on, on, this, the, on my, uh, my witness to going on a float trip, you'd pull a Bible dictionary off the shelf and look up the word float trip. And you might learn some interesting things about it. It involves some skill with a canoe, which many people on a float trip don't have. Uh, you might learn some sociological, cultural things. Some very practical. If, if a good Bible dictionary was writing about a float trip, it might make the suggestion about not standing in a canoe when you go around a corner called tip a canoe. You might find some records of ancient Missourians who fill their canoe with beverages on this long afternoon. You might find the statement that if you fall out of the canoe, just be aware the water's cold if it's coming from a spring. It's, but I haven't yet communicated the meaning of going on a float trip. And for me, that meaning was found in encountering the spring at the end, that water that flowed, that nourished that entire journey, that flew, flowed from this remarkable place. It was a, a spring, a bottomless spring. And for me... Sealed in my memory, that's the meaning of that trip. It's encountering this remarkable mystery of waters that flow from the foundations of the earth. This is the way the authors of Scripture are communicating to us. And the goal, the frames and the glasses, is seeking that mystery. The word of the Lord funds creation like a spring watering the world with forgiving, creating grace. And we listen to Scripture truly when we're listening to the writers, first of all, for that. It is that grace, as we approach the communion table, that we recognize gathers us here. In this gathering, we are free to let go of those things that burden us. 
So let us enter in time of personal confession as we pray to come to the communion table that we may set aside the things that we have done, things we have left undone, confident of the grace among us. Let us pray. Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen. In the ancient church, believers would come to the table with gifts, food to be given to the poor. And from that food, they would take the bread and the cup. So we, in this place, come with our own gifts. The building of the church, our tithes and offerings, and then we will come ourselves to feast in this banquet of God's grace. I could just sit, I could just sit and wait. 